Once you are self-aware, you must make a change. Welcome to the Millionaire Woman Show, where we'll be discussing leadership, business, human potential, inspiring you to live rich from the inside out. Unlock your creativity, stretch out of your comfort zone, break through your barriers, take inspired action, and achieve epic results. Now here's your host, three-time best-selling author, speaker, and certified executive coach, Deborah Kozowski. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another Millionaire Woman show where we talk about life, leadership, and business so that we can trailblaze together, taking those success clues along the way so you can implement them into your life and really reach the goals and dreams that you have for yourself. Now, today, I have a special guest that we're going to be talking about her brand new book, and I'm so excited because I get to... Uh, touch and feel and, you know, write in and put my tabs. I'm, we're going to be talking to Dr. Michelle P. King. She is a global recognized expert on inequality and organizational culture. Based on over decades worth of research, Michelle believes that we need to learn how workplaces work so we can make them work for everyone. And she is the host of the popular podcast called The Fix. Michelle is the author of best-selling award-winning book, The Fix, Overcome the Invisible Barriers and, that Are Holding Women Back at Work. And her second book, How Work Works, The Subtle Science of Getting Ahead Without Losing Yourself, is published internationally here on October 10th with HarperCollins. Michelle is an award-winning academic with five degrees, including a Bachelor of Arts in Industrial Organizational Psychology, a Master of Arts in Industrial Organizational Psychology, a ma master's of business administration, a postgraduate degree in journalism, and a PhD in management. Michelle is pursuing a postdoctoral research fellowship with Cranfield University in the United Kingdom. In addition, if and we're going to just keep rolling on here, Michelle is an award-winning speaker, having spoken at over 500 events over worldwide conferences for Nobel Peace Prize Conference, Elevate Network Conference, Massachusetts Conference for Women, Texas Conference for Women, She Summit, Pennsylvania Conference for Women, and many, many more. She is represented by the London Speakers Bureau and regularly hosts keynotes, fireside chats, masterclasses with companies like Amazon, FIFA, Guardian, Dior, FedEx, Netflix, BNP, Paribas, MB Morgan, Morgan Stanley, and Matt Leith, just to name a few. Michelle is the founder of The Culture Practice, a global consultancy that provides leaders with assessment, development, and inclusion coaching needed to build cultures that value difference. And in addition, Michelle is the senior advisor to the UN Foundation Girl Up Campaign, where she leads the Next Gen Leadership Development Program, which enables young women to navigate and overcome the barriers to their success. And before this, Michelle was director of the inclusion at Netflix. And before that, she was the head of the UN Women's Global Innovative Coalition for Change, which includes managing over 300 private sector partnerships to accelerate the achievement of gender equality and women's empowerment. Michelle has two decades of international experiences working with private sector. Dr. Michelle Peking, thank you and welcome <laughs> to the Millionaire Woman Show. You um, you have so much more life to give you. I can't imagine what the list will look like, 
you know, in the years to come, but I'm really grateful that you could join us on the show today. Oh, thank you so much. The New Zealander in me is dying from you reading that bio out of embarrassment, but thank you very much. It's very cool. Oh, well, I'm really excited to show you your book since you said that you haven't a copy yet. So oh, listen, I've not actually seen a copy of my book yet. So I'm, this is the first time I'm seeing it. Um, obviously I wrote it, but to actually see the, you know, the produced, obviously it'll be a hard copy. But yeah. this is the what we call the galley. So it's the one that goes out everybody to interview on. Oh, amazing. Yeah. So incredible to see it. Yeah. And it's, it's a phenomenal book. And I'm really excited about the work that you've done and how you're bringing it out to the world. Because it was really thought-provoking of how work works. And for people to really dive in like if you're listening in a car you're going to want to replay this later because you might want a pen and paper to jot down down some notes grab the book when it comes out because this book will really help you elevate your career have you look at things in a very different perspective so michelle i just wanted to throw out one of the um kudos for the book by uh Rowett. Bargava, Wall Street Journal bestselling author, non-obvious megatrends and the future normal was um, their book. But I really love how he describes the book. The people who understood people always win. Doing this means reading the seemingly invisible hints, cues, in induendos and symbolic action that humans are constantly share beyond words. These are non-obvious secrets of how we work. And this book is a wonderful, indispensable guide decoding them. I couldn't agree with that more. It really resonated with me because there are all these little things in life that we don't know about. So one of the things that I was wondering about, you know, one of the main premises you talk about in the book is why it will no longer function to follow yesterday's career book to advance your uh, way to the top yeah so look i you know for for context for listeners when i started this journey i'm, I'm a researcher right so i never write platitudes or tourisms or just my opinion i cannot i'm a researcher so i have to look at, at how things work and understand what research is telling us and about 10 years ago, after working in corporates, I really noticed a pattern in terms of the types of individuals who get ahead. Now, listeners will be smiling because we all know of somebody who's in a leadership position or who got a promotion where you can't quite figure out why. And you're like, they don't really have the performance. They're not sort of a topper. And, you know, how did they do that? And so what I found was, and it was the basis for my first book, is obviously systems of inequality, right? You've got a lot of people who look the same, who play by sort of similar rules in terms of how they form relationships, kind of exclude people, and they get ahead in the system. The problem is that world of work has changed and it will continue to change. So in the book, I talk about how the future of work is here. So we know that by 2044, at least half the population in the United States is going to be from what we typically call a minority group. So really for me, that's a typically underrepresented group. We know that there is globally a trend for diversification of talent. So in terms of demographics, diversification of customers, technological changes changing most of our jobs. And all of these changes are happening at a time and a pace that we've never seen before. On top mm -hmm. of that, you layer in how workplaces have become a lot more informal with hybrid. And what you've suddenly got 
is an environment where people have to navigate the informal. So in looking at how they navigated the informal, those old rules of exclude people, of only try and support people who look like you, of only network with people who look like you, is arguably the worst thing you can do for your career. You know, and what I find fascinating is because we gravitate so naturally to people who look like us, you know, talk like us, and that's where we're not really, we could be thinking so much broader. And, you know, when I think about those informal and formal rules, you know, when someone goes into the workplace, they are thinking, well, I know how it is. It should be like this at every workplace. And from reading your book, it definitely is not true. So I would love for you to share with us a little bit more about the formalities and informalities when someone is trying to grow their career in the workplace. Yeah, so look, what is the informal, right? Because when I was researching it, it's really irritating. A lot of sort of academic journal articles, a lot of sort of books that you'll read will talk about office politics. They'll talk about the unwritten rules, but really, you know, what are we talking about? And so I wanted to try and understand when it comes to the informal, what do we so there's really four things, right? The first is informal networks. So when we typically think of networks, we think of going to some weird cocktail party where we're going to hand out a business card, feel really awkward for an hour and then leave. Maybe that's just me, but you know, do that whole thing. And it's just, it's gross, right? And nothing ever really comes of it. That's not where the magic lives. So 70% of and not advertised and 80% of positions and jobs come through informal networks. So if you know of someone, if you, you know, you connect and we can dive into what an informal network is, but that is absolutely critical. Then the second part to this is generally when it comes to how workplaces function, we share informal information. That information is about how we see ourselves and how we see other people. So we come to understand our workplace. The third informal system is informal development. So 70% of the skills you learn, or it's closer to 70%, you actually learn on the job informally. So the book talks to you, well, how do you teach yourself? How do you do that as part of your job? And what are some of those skills you need to develop? And then finally, informal career advancements. So your company can have every promotion process in place. It can even have a policy around promotions. What I found is that more formalized companies were with policies and processes, the more informal behaviors people engage in to sort of circumvent and work around those formal policies. So really how, how you do that. So how do you manage your career and why it is that you need to manage it? Because the old rules might say, hey, stay with a company, you know, play by rules that senior leaders said, and you'll progress. That's not the case careers have changed. So now it's about like, how do I manage my employability? What do I need to do? What does that look like? And so the book goes into that as well. Yeah. And when, and when we're talking about those informal net networking opportunities, you know, it's that water co cooler type talk or, you know, going to the gym or maybe playing tennis or a golf game is, was always my understanding of how, what that looked like. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more because I know you also in the book talk about, you know, when someone's introverted and feeling very uncomfortable with those network opportunities, there is still a chance for them to really connect and network and grow in their careers as well. Yeah, look, I mean, I'm an introvert. No one's going to be a socially confident introvert. So I have to really think about informal networks. And so the first thing I would say to people, and we're going to get into actions here, everybody is you want to make the informal visible, right? You want to make it, you so I would run mapping your network. How do you do that? Sit down with a piece of paper and list out everybody 
that you go to for information on how to do your job, information about the company. Then list, and, and these are people who you regularly, right, who you regularly engage with. Then write down a list of everybody who provides you with social support. So support when you're having a bad day, somebody you might talk to. Now, this might just be two or three people, right? You don't need a massive long list. And then finally, write down people you go to for career advice or advice in general. So informal networks are made up of those three things. People go to for information, support, or advice. So when you write that down, that's your informal network. Most people have about eight to 12 people in their informal network. So when you think about, hey, that's who I currently have. If you don't have anybody in some of those buckets, then that tells you where you might wanna grow your network, right? I think the second thing you wanna do is think about, well, how diversified is my network? So how similar or different are those people from me in terms of demographic characteristics, background, all of that, right? Because the single most important thing you can do when it comes to networking today is diversify your network. So if people are very similar to you, you might want to think about, you know, who could I reach out to? How could I grow my network? And we'll come to how you grow networks in a minute. And then I think the, the third thing you want to do once you've understood sort of how diversified is, think about are these relationships mutually beneficial? There's a bit of a shocking statistic, Deborah, that I came across in the research, which shows that 90% of our anxiety at work is created by 5% of the people in our informal network. So we are okay when we're like, hey, this is someone who's got my back and is going to support me when it comes to information, social support, advice, like, you know. And we're actually okay if we're like, this is someone who doesn't have my back or I can't rely on. Where we're not okay is when we're not sure if there somebody's going to support us or not, because we spend a huge amount of mental energy trying to work out which bucket they sit in and how to navigate that. So on your list, make sure you're clear this is mutually beneficial or no, it's not, because the people that it's no, it's not don't spend time investing in that relationship. It's not going to do you any good. And then sort of the third thing you want to do is think about you know, when it comes to that network, is there somebody that's a strong connection, someone that I meet with regularly where we share a lot, or is this maybe more of a sort of loose connection where we meet from time to time, but there's no depth of the conversation? Because in networks, you need both. So loose connections where it's a bit more informal, those people are going to give you information. And by the way, information about jobs, whereas strong connections, they're more going to provide that social support and advice. So you want to mix. So that's what I would do to sort of map my network. And then from that, you can start to work out where you've got gaps, what you might need to invest in. Ideally, at minimum, you want to have one person who's giving you information, one person who's giving you advice, and two people who are giving you social support. So if you can just do that as a starting point, you're in a good place to keep building around your network. You know, what I, what I was finding fascinating as, as I was listening to you, a colleague of mine lives in the UK. He talks about support, reflection, encouragement. They're, those are the three types of social vitamins that you need on a daily basis. And as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about, you know, when people say that you become the average of the five people you hang out with the most and thinking about if you, they're all the same, you're just replicas of each other clones. And there is no meaty conversation that you can go deep because you're all doing the same things, right? Well, and the other thing around diversifying the network, the reason that's so important is because let's say you're a white male and you reach out to me, right? 
my network's pretty diverse because I've, I've done pretty well on that. Um, I've got some other things to work on, but I've done that well. So I then have access to a full range of a diverse network. So at any one point I can intro that. So you instantly diversify your network by just having one person in it who doesn't reflect your background. I imagine you have quite a few of those. Suddenly you've got a network of people with connections all over the world, right? So, and for me, as self-serving as the sounds, think of your informal network as your ticket to future employment, because it is. Like the informal networks are literally, when you map where people get jobs, that's it, it's not LinkedIn. It's through the network, right? Calling yeah. people up, hey, do you have a job? That's how you hear about opportunities. And you know, I, I found it like, when I think about the exercise, when I got to that exercise, I'm like, wow, I've never thought about this before. I, I've started thinking about some of the people I know. And like you said, if you don't have some of those, it's time to switch things up. And that was something that really came to me. You know, through the podcast, I get to meet phenomenal people and, you know, to stay connected. And th those networks have been really intriguing to me because of the di diversity of the backgrounds. But I know that there's so many informal rules that we don't know about that have changed over the past decade. And, you know, when I think about the pandemic itself, I think it, it actually gave us a rapid state of change. And those informal networks, even though over the past two years, when we moved to some of the hybrid working remote work, you know, I think that our workplaces have accelerated tremendously in growth and progress because they've been forced to. Mm -hmm. And so the informal rules have changed. I'd love for you to talk about a little bit more about how that works. So they've changed massively. So we've seen there's a trend and I talk about in the book of workplaces actually becoming more informal and more ambiguous. So and hybrid working has accelerated that. So what we've seen is a trend towards and it will continue. It's forecasted to continue self-managing teams right a lack of hierarchy so we're just flattening the hierarchy only 14 percent of businesses maintain that hierarchy and believe it's important to them achieving results so there's a forecast that we're just going to sort of have really flatter structures right and there's a trend to also get rid of mid-level managers now i know a lot of people will be like amen but you get rid of those mid-level and you've got suddenly got self-managing teams that's actually a lot harder because now your career success doesn't just depend on one person it depends on your teammates doing your end of year performance reviews giving you feedback on what you need to do differently helping you advance right so your ability to influence persuade navigate that matters and social skills is makes up 75% of your long term career success. So I'll just say that again for everybody, your career success, 75% of it depends on your social skills, only 25% depends on technical skills. And that's because most of us don't go to work and just do our job, right? 82% of us have to go to work and collaborate with others to achieve outcomes. So I think on the informal side, what we've got to recognize is yes, all of that matters, but doing that in a hybrid environment, super difficult. So for example, on, on this, if we were doing this in person, it would be an entirely different experience because you'd be able to pick up on my whole environment, on how I'm dressed, my body language, all of it, right? Now we're having to work extra hard to pick up on those social cues, which makes it really difficult. So I just want to acknowledge to everybody that you know, a lot of that has compounded the difficulty of at the same time, we need it more, but it's becoming a lot harder to do it really well. Yeah. 
One of the things I recognize about that I want to acknowledge is yesterday, I there's a group that I had been working with and had been on Zoom for quite a while. And then yesterday I was there in person and they're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe how she goes, it, the connection was good on Zoom, but to be there in person and really be able to see you and feel your presence makes a big difference. And I know in the book, you talk about this workplace phenomenon, which is called reading the air. And, you know, I've never, I've felt it, but I've never really had words for it. So when you refer to this reading the air, I was just like, this is incredible. So I'd love for you to share everybody what reading the air means and how we go about managing it. So reading the air is, is simply put is understanding um, and being aware of other people's perspectives, right? And so that you can navigate your informal interactions with them. So understanding somebody else, understanding their perspective, understanding their needs so that you can help manage your informal interactions. And for me, the term read the air, I wanted, as somebody who's lived all over the world, I wanted to show how this is a global phenomenon. So the term is actually a translation of a Japanese term, but you will hear this term wherever you go. It just sounds different. So people might say reading the room. You know, in Britain, they might say taking the room's temperature, reading between the lines, reading the unwritten rules. All of those terms are really, hey, are you aware of the informal side of our interactions? Are you picking up on that? Do you understand that? Mm-hmm. And what's not being said? Now, obviously, I've worked in some countries, and you and I touched on this before, where it's really obvious right so really explicit people will just say it and i grew up in south africa it's a lot more explicit there people will tell you exactly sort of what they're they're thinking and feeling and then you come to some cultures like britain where it's a lot more inferred right you've got to pick up and 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 try and understand i actually argue that in in informal workplaces regardless of what cultural setting you are being able to pick up what somebody's saying without them explicitly saying it is absolutely critical and the reason it's critical is part of the reason you don't just want to be explicit in what you're saying you want to manage it is because we need to manage the impact that our words have mm-hmm. so yes i can say hey i don't like the way you did that presentation but what's the impact of that how am i going to be disengaged how am i going to feel right it's managing how the other person is going to receive it so they can hear it and for me there's sort of something's happened in the world of work where there's a lack of care almost a lack of love for our workplaces where it's like look i'm just going to be myself regardless i'm just going to say what i think and that's not actually authenticity authenticity in many respects is being yourself, but it's also managing the impact your behavior is having. And I think we manage that impact by finding the best way to communicate so that a person can hear us and there's some level of care and kindness in it. And in the book, you have a story about a Japanese businessman. Um, and I, I might butcher this, but let me try and say it because I don't know much Japanese. Kuki o yumu means read, read there. Is that right? It's, it's close enough. Yeah, we'll go with that. Yeah, but I, I would love for you to share the story about the Japanese businessman who actually failed to read the air and what the impact was. So this was a tweet that went viral in Japan. I'll share all the links to this in the book so you can look it up. But basically, there was a, a businessman. He had a client. They were in a meeting and the client said, you know, the meeting has kind of gone on a little long. The client said to him in Japanese, hey, uh, that's a nice watch, is it new, you know? And so the businessman sort of looked at his watch, right? 
And in Japan, it's super informal, right? That's a cultural norm. So in looking at the watch, what the businessman, the client was trying to say to the businessman is, hey, wrap the meeting up like we're done. Look at the time. He wasn't really commenting on the watch. Now, people might say like, wow, why don't you just say let's wrap the meeting up or let's get to it. And again, this is because he's he's managing the impact his behavior is having. He knows if he embarrasses this businessman, it's going to be difficult for them to engage in the future. Mm -hmm. So he's taking action to demonstrate care by saying, hey, I'm letting you know. And the thing is, even in explicit cultures, like I worked at Netflix in America, America is pretty explicit. Like even in that environment, you still have to read between the lines of what's happening, what people are saying, of what they're doing. It, there's always a requirement to understand informal. People aren't always going to tell you exactly what they think of you, exactly you know how they're feeling. You have to be able to pick that up. Right. Because when I first read it, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad she's coming on the show. I have to ask her because in North America, I would see the tendency of someone saying, hey, we have each have accountability. Why wouldn't you just say, look at the time we really got to wrap this up. But when, when you say that, you know, it's kind of like saving face, you don't want to embarrass them when you're both accountable for the time, but this person's running the meeting, right? I think my accountability as the businessman, because you're absolutely correct. Yes, we are both accountable. My accountability is to pay attention and to think about my impact that I'm having, right? And so it's to actually pick up what you're putting down. And I think we miss this in workplaces, right? So it's the whole, again, you know, my big rant on authenticity, people who are like, I'm just going to be myself no matter what, like, it doesn't matter. You're not, you're not keeping up your end of the bargain. And in the book, there's a whole chapter on trust and how workplaces are fundamentally about a trust exchange, right? Like, hey, it's not just money and pay and a contract. It's actually about, do you have my best interests in mind? And when you're at work, that is the rule for how this works, right? Like, I'm going to have your best interests in mind. I'm not, I don't want to shame you. I don't want to embarrass you. I don't want to make you feel bad. But I do want you to pay attention to the fact that i got to get going and this meeting has to wrap up. So you need to be, you know, in this with me and try and manage that impact as well and have my best interests in mind. And that's really, you know, the book, the last chapter talks about meaning which is something, I don't know why we don't talk about this, but you know, most people want to get meaning from work. what everybody, all the research tells us, you're not gonna get that from your salary. You're not gonna get that from your job title. Where do people get meaning from? Their connections. So if you're not managing the impact your behavior has, you're gonna find your work less meaningful because you're gonna be less connected to the people who work with you. Nobody wants to work with a competent jerk. People wanna work with people who have their best interests in mind and who demonstrate some of that care. That's what the book's about. Like, how do you do this in a way where it's a bit of a win-win, right? Because to date, I think with the, you know, just being really blunt and out there, what we're doing is we're putting our needs ahead of the other person. We're looking at this as a win-lose and it doesn't need to be. It really doesn't. Right. And in the book, you actually, when, like when you're talking about the connections in the book, you talk, don't fake it till you make it. So often we hear fake it till you make it, you know, show up as this personality that you want to be but I can see how we'd be losing some of those connections because people can see through it or not feel it I'd love for you to touch touch on a little bit more about don't fake yeah, it yeah I mean faking it till you make it is actually really stressful and people will know this right so this whole like and there's a ton of research now that's out showing that it's actually not a good thing to do because you're creating a version of yourself and then having to live up to it right and 
I mean, that's different from positive thinking. So I'm not doing away with people who want to self-develop and positive thinking. But when you go out there and pretend to be somebody else, that's really stressful. You've now got to like live up to that. The social anxiety of that, like it's not a great thing to do. So for me, the authenticity is thinking about not just how do you be yourself, it's how do you be your best self? And how do you do that by consciously and effectively managing the impact your behavior is having? And for me, you know, that's why the second practice is important around self-awareness. That's why, you know, understanding how to pay it forward, which we talk about in career advancement, super important. All of those are ways to invest. And just, you know, a quick example for people practically as to what does this look like on your network, managing your impact. If you want to grow your informal network, I want you to think about people you want to reach out to and which of those categories they fall into, right? Information, social support or advice. But then think about their needs and what they might get from you. So what would they approach you for? Is it advice? Is it information? Or is it support? And then the most effective networking strategy isn't saying, do you want to go for a cup of coffee or do you want to do, go to golf? I mean, all of that's great to, as time to connect. It's actually taking the time to give them the thing they want without them asking you. So for example, if I have a client and I want to invest in growing that, I might send them an article or a report or say, hey, did you see this? I thought you might find it interesting. Or, hey, here's a video on something I thought you might. Or do you want to do a webinar with me on LinkedIn, you know, to help boost like your, your company's, you know, view on DEI publicly, whatever it is. And I do it without any request, right? Any, any, any sense of getting anything back. I did this with a client literally last week. Um, you know, they paid me to do some virtual training. I said, look, I think it'll be more effective in person. I won't charge you extra for that. I'll come out. I'll just do it in person. The client. And then we secured a huge contract. Right? So that's how you do it. Paying it forward, thinking about, you know, how do I invest in this? Very effective. That's amazing. I, I'm just sitting here. I got all these thoughts in my head. And when when you're seeing how effective that can be, it also means that you don't have to sacrifice who you are as a person, right? And that was something that I know people might be curious listening to us right now. Does reading the air mean that you have to sacrifice who you believe you are and the values of your organization and what you stand for? It's almost the opposite of that. Like I would argue you're sacrificing who you are when and who you, you, you know, your fullest potential when you just don't care. So, you know, it's almost become cool not to care about workplaces, but I've got like really bad news for everybody. We are our workplaces. Like we think of workplaces as, you know, the buildings or the logos. It's not. Workplaces are literally the co collection of people in it. And I think what we miss, and it's quite sad to me, is you literally spend the most number of hours, your waking hours at work. And over a lifetime, next to sleeping, work is where we spend the most number of hours. So if we don't care about our time and our lived experience when we're there, we're actually not caring about a significant portion of our lives. So for me, it's really about, hey, how can I get me? How can I derive meaning? How can I feel like I've made a contribution? How can I enjoy being here? What is going to give me that? And I think for me, it absolutely starts with like thinking about who you are, thinking about how you want to move through your workplace, thinking about the impact you have, but also being very conscious that when you leave your organization, you are not going to care about the job title or the pay because all the research tells us that what you're going to think about is, hey, what did I leave behind? 
And that's the meaning you derive from your work. That is through all the connections that you formed. So invest in that because that's what's going to give you the job satisfaction. That's what's going to make you joyful. That's what's going to make you feel like you've actually had a meaningful career at the end. And that was quite shocking to me to see that because it's almost counterintuitive. You think, well, I'm successful when I've made it. But actually the root word for success in Latin means exit. It means how you leave. And I think we've got to think about when I leave this, my career behind, you know, what will the impact have been? And for me, that starts with the connections you form. Yeah. And the meaning that it provided you, but also the legacy you leave behind. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So tell us a little bit more. What are some of the informal or invisible rules that we need to start making more visible in the workplace? So the big one I think I'd like to um, share with everybody, and you know, it sort of extends on this whole watch. Um, you're the first person to actually mention the watch story. I'm like, such a good story for explaining this. So the big one I want to talk to everybody about is self-awareness and other awareness. So that was really the second kind of practice we touched on. So I think when it comes to self-awareness, what we have to sort of own is that most of us aren't self-aware. So while 95% of people think they're self-aware, research shows actually only 15% of people are. And if you lack self-awareness, which by and large most of us do, you kind of fall into two categories. You're either someone who's an overestimator or you're an underestimator. And the new rules of work to manage the impact your behavior has, you've got to be self-aware. So you've got to think about, hey, am I somebody who tends to overestimate my performance, which means you're not open to feedback, you're not regularly reflecting on that feedback, you're not regulating your behavior, or am I somebody who underestimates my performance? So if you're an underestimator, good news, because it's a lot easier to become self-aware if you're an underestimator. You just need to get more regular feedback, focus on the positives, focus on your strengths, like start to own your achievements. But if you're an overestimator, like just having one of those individuals on your team reduces your team's performance by 50%. So an overestimator in our Japanese example with the watch would be a person who left that meeting going, that was amazing. I don't know why I commented on my watch. That's weird. But yeah, that was an amazing meeting. Right? Instead of thinking, hey, I wonder if, you know, particularly in Japanese culture, right, if he was trying to tell me something, the meeting felt a bit off. I wonder, he, he looked like he needed to get out of there. Maybe I should have actually thought about wrapping the meeting up. So self-awareness for me, there's three things you can really do. So research finds, obviously you need to, you know, regularly reflect on your behavior, you know, try and get feedback. And in fact, one study found if you just spend 15 minutes a day reflecting on your day, you do that for 10 days straight, you're going to improve your self-awareness like it's upwards of 90%. So you just take time to reflect on what worked well, what didn't, what could I do differently? The second thing is when you're reviewing your behavior, try not to focus on why. So if we think about the Japanese example, if you're sitting there going, you know, why did the client do that? Is he doesn't like me? I'm just not a good fit. You get into the, the death spiral of negativity, right? Unhelpful. So studies show if you focus on what questions, like what could I do differently? What could have worked better? What have I learned from this? What can I do to get tangible feedback from the client you know you think of the what questions that review stage is going to be a lot more effective right and then the regulate is literally just put it into practice most people never do that so in the feedback culture we have particularly in north america where i've spent like 10 years working we love giving feedback but you know are you actually doing anything with it so what changes in your behavior are you making so for me those are the three things around self-awareness and then the other awareness is 
you know, in the Japanese example, it's not enough just to have self-awareness, right? It's great to understand how you see yourself, but your job is to try and understand, hey, how do other people see me? And how do I see other people? So I think for me, my big message to everybody, particularly in hybrid working, is always think about what the person needs, but think about their context. So we always like, particularly on Zoom, right? So for me, what's my context? It's the evening now for me, it's 6 p.m. Right. I've got two kids, I've got a dog. It's, you might, you can hear my dog, she just barked. You know, I've had a whole day's worth of work. Like you might take all of that context in to think about how I'm feeling. Right. That context is key. In a virtual setting, it's very difficult because it's easy if someone has their camera off to think they're just not interested, they're disengaged. Maybe they have a sick kid, maybe they have something else going on. So when you're trying to understand, like in the Japanese example, why is the client showing up in this way? You know, you can spend a, a huge amount of time going down that path, or you can think about what could I do differently? What could be going on for the client? You know, what could they be needing in this situation? They might be busy. They might want to wrap up the meeting. You know, Michelle, you've lived in many different places in the world and, you know, reflecting on your day. It's very powerful. Do you find that people keep journals or is it something that they just reflect or is it recommended that they journal this out for, you know, our viewers and our listeners to know how we can put this into action? Is, so is I it think the journaling is super important. I mean, like I say, that one study found you just do that for 10 days, just sit for 15 minutes, reflect on your day, what worked, what didn't, what were some of your observations, you're going to make progress on your self awareness. I think the problem is, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, like people be like, well, who really has 15 minutes a day to sit down and do that. And for me, I'm like, look, at minimum, if you want to improve, find a moment, I don't know, when you're showering or when you're lying in bed just before, you know, you hop out of bed, like to just play back the day and think about, hey, how did that go? What could I have done different? And I do this all the time. The other thing is to really look at, you know, on the third practice, we talk about informal development and your peers are your teachers. A lot of the feedback you can get, you know, your informal development depends on the feedback. So having and seeking out informal feedback and my big sort of, you know, message here is whatever you do, don't make it weird, right? Like with the feedback, don't go to somebody with a form and formalize it and sit down. I want the feedback because that's where we lose the magic, right? It's more like with my business partner, we'll get off a call and I'll call her up and I'll just say, hey, how did you think that went? And then I'll say, what could I have done differently? What do you think worked? And just in the moment, I get the feedback. And then, you know, I review that regularly. Like, hey, I'm wondering if there's a pattern here and what people are saying. I'm wondering if there's right. something I can... I will post this podcast. I promise you, I will spend 10 minutes thinking, hey, what worked? What didn't? So I did a podcast interview the other week. And I was like, that didn't go as well as I think it could have. So I prepped in a different way, right? And I think right. constantly regulating. Yeah, it's really yeah. important. And, you know, one of the things I, I would just listening to you and sharing this is that if people start journaling and writing it down, and if there is a formal interview, you have abundance of stories that you could use and where you have demonstrated that self-awareness and course corrected and done different things because you've been able to read the air or you've been able to really reflect on who you've become. And they say in the literature, like writing down is probably the single most important thing you can do. Why? Because mm -hmm. it makes us aware. 
Like we literally have the practice of awareness is looking at what you're seeing, you know, it's the mirror to yourself yeah. and the words are the mirror. So that's why it's such a helpful practice. Yeah. We talked a little bit about informal networking as well as formal networking. And, you know, some of my experiences, you know, and you've described it so well, because it does feel awkward, you know, some places they'll teach you to have this, you know, one liner. And I just, you know, it's rehearsed, you know, <laughs> as soon as they say it, I just want to start laughing. And I'm like, let's switch this up. Let's talk about what you want, what you do for fun. Cause I really want to know what you're interested in what makes you tick, what, what gets you excited about life and the work that you do. And then I start hearing the stories and it pours out. Right. And I find when I go into those informal, the formal networks, you have to switch it into more of an informal feeling. So I would love for you to just share with us, you know, the importance of still doing the formal networking, but how powerful it is to do that informal networking. Yeah, so I think I'm not saying we, you know, completely ditch formal networking, right? I just want to make it really clear to people that that is not where you're going to get the best bang for your buck, yeah. right? So if you spent you took that time if you don't have the time to go to the formal events i mean seeing people meeting people making connections in a way it's not about the event right it's about the coffee after the event and the chatting with the person the informal right so for me it's more again applying my framework to that so if you think about an informal networking event and you go along you have your coffee you meet someone who's nice you get back to your desk you've got the business cards apply what we just talked about so think about hey out of all those people who wants who can i provide social support to information advice who might want what do they need from me who can i pay it forward to how might i reach out and do that in a way that doesn't feel like i'm selling it feels more like i'm, I'm offering them something without them even you know doing all of that as a way to foster the connection so i think you can use the formal in an informal way and i don't think the formal's ever going to go away so I want to be really clear with everybody. While it is workplaces are becoming less bureaucratic, we're seeing less policies, less processes, less formalized stuff. I think it's always kind of going to be there because it needs to be. So then the question becomes like, as it becomes more informal, how do you work with both, right? I think for me, it's just recognizing the informal exists. And it's kind of weird, Deborah, because people will, in my PhD, I did 72 interviews in two different countries. and people will deny the informal. There's a little wow. bit of gaslighting that goes on in workplaces, right? People say, well, we've got formal policies. We just follow the rules here, you know, that, and, and then you actually ask them, well, yeah. how did you get promoted or how did you promote, you know, somebody who works for you? And you realize the entire thing, it's nonsense. So I, I just want to remind people, you know, just recognize this is absolutely how workplaces work based on data. Um, and then formal will trump the formal every day. And that, and that has a lot to do with the awareness or maybe they are aware or <laughs> can't see it that, you know, they may be following policies in some areas, but because they've had this connection with someone that that just seemed like the natural thing to do. And again, like you said, it's 15%. That's not a lot of awareness that's out there, right? It's just well, like you say, common sense isn't that common shockingly so in academia we call this the ceo disease because the least self-aware group in any organization are leaders in fact like roughly 80 percent of leaders lack self-awareness 
And so the, one of the reasons for that, if we think of the model around, you know, review, feedback, reflect on it, and then regulate your behavior, they don't have access to honest feedback because people basically right. lie to them their boss and say, yeah, you're amazing. So they tend to be overestimated. So you've got <laughs> a whole right. bunch of people walking around. Yeah. It's really unhelpful to their team. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy to think about it. So when it comes to job security, you know, when we think about reading the air and having job security and building these informal networks, how do you cultivate job security for yourself when a lot of companies are starting to participate in layoffs? Yeah, so this is a big one. I think we have to recognize that careers have changed. You know, they and I, I think people talk a lot about this, but what do we really mean? Well, we mean you have to engage in lifelong learning because it's not about one job, it's about your employability, right? And there is no ladder, there's no climb because that is disintegrating. Careers are boundaryless. You're going to work for multiple companies. You might have multiple jobs. You might work, you know, in all sorts of different ways and hybrid sort of accelerated this, right? Yeah. And so I think it's thinking about, you know, what makes me employable? How do I maintain my employability? So I want to encourage people to think of three things. I think the first is getting really clear on what do you need from your workplace so in my book i share these five needs right around like safety belonging meaning the need to sort of be competent and and a need to sort of have freedom to learn and grow it's important to get clear on what you need right because then you're going to go and seek out opportunities to meet that need through the jobs that you get and knowing what you want is really important, right? So some people, it is just safety in terms of getting money, getting a regular income, that's what they need. But for a lot of people, they want more, right? So getting clear on your needs and in what order is really important. I think the second thing is knowing who's going to support you. And by this, I don't mean a mentor or sponsor, right? So mentors generally give you advice. It's sponsors, that's the old school way of doing it, right? We've got somebody in the room is trying to like maneuver you that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about somebody who's literally going to advocate for your career is going to be like this is why you need and i've had them so i've had people in my career who paid it forward without me even knowing they've gone into the room and been like this is you know michelle i've worked with her this is what she's done she's amazing and been really supportive of me getting ahead and in a transparent way right not trying to maneuver and then I think the final piece is knowing how to manage your, your career through your reputation. So in the book, I talk to three things that make a reputation. It's being consistent, it's being transparent, and it's being really clear in terms of how you're showing up. So that clarity, consistency, and transparency is what builds trust. And in workplaces, your reputation really is how much do people trust you? So when we think of trust, we always think of like, you know, the new thing is vulnerability and people sort of doing all that. That's actually not. So in the data, what we found is trust is about predictability. Can I predict how you're going to show up? And if you want to be somebody who is consistent, who's transparent, who's clear in how you're showing up, you're going to have a good reputation because people can predict how you're going to behave, which is why they want to engage with you. Predictability builds trust. And to your point, you raised it right at the beginning of the interview. We do like people who are similar to us. Why? Because we can predict how they're going to behave. So one way to change that equation around in an increasingly diversified workforce, if you want people to trust you, want to like working with them, be predictable. So be sure of who you are, show up in a consistent way. And, you know, doing a lot of what in the, is in the book is already practices to build some of that trust. Right. And when you talk about the career advocate, 
who would someone like that be? Is it someone within your own department or is it someone maybe you've maybe networked in another department within the same organization or even just outside? I'm assuming it could maybe be a range. Yeah, so look, in the past, you would have a, you know, a mentor sponsor, right? Those are terms people might be familiar with. And a sponsor would always be a more senior person who would like take you under the wing. It's all a bit like old school, right? It's ridiculous. But in the modern workplace where that's not actually really what matters because it's about employability now, right? And multiple companies, multiple people, you need career advocates. So that can be people at any level. I've had peers, I've had people who've worked for me previously, I've had, the question is, are they willing to advocate for you in your career? Are they willing to pay it forward? And the only way you're going to know that is if you've invested enough in that relationship. So it's the person or the friend or the contact who calls you up and says, hey, there's this opportunity. So now we're right back to informal networks, because that's where all the jobs come, right? right. So within your network, it's thinking, hey, who's my, who's somebody who'd let me know about an opportunity? Who's somebody who's got my interest in mind? Who's somebody who's yeah. kind of supporting my career? You might only have one of those. You might have none of those, but it's thinking about, hey, how do I, how do I get that? How do I let people know what I'm interested in? So right now, I'm interested in doing something different. I know of an old contact I had who would advocate for me. So I'm going to message her and say, hey, you know what, why don't we catch up? I really want to chat and let you know what I'm working on, see if there's anything I can help you with. And in that conversation, I'll let her know I'm looking for an opportunity. So that's that's how it works, right? And you don't have to have many of them. You can have them at any level, but it's important that you keep in contact um, with those advocates. Yeah. And I think we take that for granted. You know, I've been, you know, messaged for references. I'm sure you've been messaged for references. And sometimes you're like, oh, I haven't talked to you in so long. I wonder what you're up to. And without catching up, you, you don't know if you, you can only remember the time you were with that person right. to really share what they've been up to. But once you explore what they've been up to, you can really expand and put some energy behind it. Absolutely. Yep. You know, manage your career advocates in the same way you do your informal network. And often they are on your informal network, right? So, and if you can have those in different industries, different levels, it's really important. And some of them might be, to your point, some of those weak ties we talked about, those loose connections, right? Where they're not somebody you might tell all your feelings to, but they're somebody, if you see them, you'd say hi and you'd probably have a little catch up. So it's thinking right. about how do you just keep enough contact to keep that connection alive? Yeah. You know, you have given us so many things to think about from mapping out our connections to really um, diving into really thinking about reflecting on how we show up in the workplace and, and where we really want to go. What is an actionable piece of advice that how work works that someone could make tangible like right now before they even grab your book? I love it. So if you're going to do one thing and I really recommend you do this, is pay it forward. So in your workplace, what we found was, you know, nine out of 10 people are willing to trade a significant portion of their income for greater meaning at work. And when we looked at what gives you meaning, it is 100% paying it forward. So what do I mean by that? I mean, do something for your peers without any need to get anything back. So think about the people you work with, think about the people you want to have those good relationships with and think about, you know, how can I support their development? How can I support their advancement? How can I support their self-awareness in terms of giving them feedback? How can I pay this forward? Because the thing is, when you pay it forward to somebody else that without any expectation of anything back, 
that person is not only going to pay it forward back to you, but anybody watching that happen is going to pay it forward to you. So you create this ripple effect in, in your network, in your community, in your workplace. And the amazing thing about it is when you give to others, you're actually giving to yourself because the data shows one action of paying it forward every day, you will feel more committed, more satisfied, more engaged, happier. You'll derive greater meaning from your workplace. So if you do one thing that I, out of the whole book, just remember that everything you want is on the other side of investing in the people within your within your workplace. And we don't talk about that, we don't celebrate that, but that is at the heart of what it means to be part of a workplace and to belong. This has been such a powerful interview, Michelle. I am just blown away and I'll be reflecting on this and I'm not wearing my watch, but I do have a clock nearby. And you know, that lesson really was very powerful for me and it makes me very mindful. So I want to make sure I'm honoring your time for your evening tonight. And uh, <laughs> I have a couple questions now. Really yeah, because yeah, you got me thinking about this watch now. Every time I'm going to look at the watch, <laughs> I'm going to think about this businessman. Because uh, in the book, he loses the contract. <laughs> so I'm like, it's not happening. Not yeah. happening. So um, we usually finish off the show with asking you about two questions. One is, what is one book that has had a profound impact on your life? And it can't be the one you wrote. Oh, yeah. No, I'd never say the one I wrote. Um, <laughs> so I, I would have to say... Um, anything anything written by bell hooks um like my first bell hooks book ain't i a woman um transformed the way i understood workplaces and the reason you know i think it's important to start there is we have to sort of shift some of our views as to how things work in and in life and in workplaces in particular and anything that can make you think differently is very powerful. And so Bell Hooks did that for me. And I think now in my writing, as a researcher, I like to show people, you think it's this, but actually this is what's happening. And that's kind of stuck with me in, in my own writing. Yeah, it sounds like that you probably were an instigator as a child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah. <laughs> anyone I know who does that because I'm of similar fabric that you know I like to be the thought provoker get you thinking and giving you a little twist of how to think that see it something yeah, exactly. differently my it's final question <laughs> my final question for you is what does it mean to you to live rich from the inside out I think it's it's feeling connected to my environment and the people within it and I've learned how to do that now through paying it for, I, I realized the importance of investing in my environment and the people in it and how that is actually how I give to myself. That's amazing. Thank you so, so much for coming on the show. How can people stay in touch with you? Oh, uh, my website, michellepeking.com. And I just want to share with people, I'm all about applications. So I hate it when people share insights and there's nothing you know to do with it. As you can probably tell, because there's loads of actions in this interview. Uh, but on my website, there's a free career journal to anyone who buys the book. And it's got one exercise for every week of a whole year. So 52 exercises that cover, you know, a lot of what's in the book that helps you apply it. So if you're looking for something free, that's going to jumpstart your career. My team and I have spent a huge amount of hours pulling that together. So it's an e-journal. 
just download it and you can use it. Yeah. Well, one thing I know for sure from this interview, Michelle, is that I know a bunch of people. I've already made a list of people that I want to send your book to in my informal networks because I know it's going to help them in their organizations and work with their individuals of who they are career advocates for. So I want to thank you so much for investing your life's work in creating meaningful connections, making it a meaningful workplace. And I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart and everyone listening or watching us here on the Millionaire Woman Show. Thank you so much, Deborah. It means a lot. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you everyone for joining us here on the Millionaire Woman Show on behalf of Michelle and myself. We want to extend, you know, putting some of those tips and strategies into action. It isn't just for whoo, aha moments. It is for application. I'd love for you to also go over to my website to www.debrakosowski.com. You can grab your free PDF of Reset Your Mindset and also in combination with the resources that you are working on right now that can help you stay in that growth mindset place. As Mahama Gandhi said, be the change you wish to see in the world. And as always, go out and make today great. Thank you.